Well, thank you, team, for leading us in that. It's an appropriate song as we uh, come to the study of God's Word now uh, today, I think. It's my privilege to be able to share from God's Word with you today. You know, Pastor Steve has had just a few weeks away from the pulpit, really at the elders' request. They like to give him just a little bit of time just to kind of be refreshed and do some planning and some other things and not have the weekly burden of sermon preparation. But he will be back next week and, and on a regular basis in the pulpit, and uh, hopefully you're looking forward to that. I believe we're digging back into First John. But in the meantime, you're kind of stuck with me here today, and so I will do my best to hopefully bless you through God's Word today. And I want to start by sharing how the cover uh, today, uh, or this month's Christianity Today magazine, saw it arrived in my home, and it intrigued me the moment I saw it, just this week. Uh, the title was, Grappling with the God of Two Testaments. And as I expected, inside were several articles about the apparent disconnect, about how the God pictured in the Old Testament uh, is sometimes in conflict with how we see Him in the New if you ever spent any period of time reading both the Old and the New Testaments, you've probably picked up on this issue. You see, today we, we look and we, we read, consider the Old Testament through kind of a New Testament-informed lens. And with a New Testament perspective, we read passages in the Old Testament, that's, and we say, you know, this, this just doesn't make sense. There's some, just some weird stuff in here, like raisin cakes and talking donkeys. And there's also so much wrath and judgment. I don't see how God can be that way, especially in light of who he has revealed himself to be in Christ. And sometimes we ask questions like, well, has God somehow changed? Can I really believe the Old Testament? I don't see how the wrathful God I see in the Old Testament is in any way consistent with the loving, merciful God of the New Testament. We're going to study an Old Testament text today that will certainly be a bit shocking at first. And it, but as we dig into it, I hope it will become clear how this Old Testament passage is actually wonderfully consistent with the person of Jesus and with the gospel. But most importantly, we're going to come to a text that gives us a tremendous picture of just how consistent God is to himself, even when we betray him. Or how faithful God is to his promises, even when we are so very faithless. So turn with me, if you will, to the book of Hosea. The title for this sermon is Spiritual Harlotry and Supernatural Hope. And I have a warning for you. This is a bit of a heavy message today with some mature themes in it. But hang with me. First half or two-thirds is a little, little heavy, but there is incredible hope here as well and encouragement that we'll get to. And I trust you will be blessed by and last week, we looked at the book of Habakkuk, and that was perhaps, for many of you, the first sermon any of you have ever heard from the book of Habakkuk. You know, we here at Bethel, we believe in preaching the whole counsel of God, not just the New Testament. And so today, we're going to study another one of these minor prophets, Hosea. And Hosea is found directly after the four major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. It is the first book of what we call the Twelve Minor Prophets. And these minor prophets, they're not minor because they're somehow less significant or less important. They're minor simply because they're shorter, much shorter than the four major prophets. And chronologically, Hosea is one of the first prophetic books ever written. Hosea's ministry certainly precedes that of Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel and a host of other prophets. Uh, Hosea was likely a contemporary of Isaiah. 
Both of them ministered at roughly the same time. And the book begins, Hosea chapter 1, verse 1, by telling us exactly when it was that Hosea ministered. It says, The word of the Lord came to Hosea, the son of Barry, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. We see here very now clearly the historical setting. Hosea's prophetic ministry occurred during a time when God's people were actually divided into two kingdoms. There was the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And long gone were the days of David or of Solomon when the Jewish people were united in one single nation. For nearly 200 years now, they have been divided into two separate kingdoms. And it's not going particularly well for the northern kingdom of Israel. The northern kingdom has succumbed to rampant idolatry and the worship of false gods, in particular the pagan god Baal was highly revered throughout the land. And Hosea was primarily ministering in this context to the northern kingdom of Israel, which has seen better days. And frankly, it doesn't have many days left before it. See, in just a few short decades, we learn and see that the northern kingdom will be conquered by the Assyrians. And all that will remain will be the southern kingdom. And actually, all throughout the book of Hosea, we see repeated prophecies about this event that will eventually come true, including here in the first two chapters, which will be the focus of our text here today. Let's dig in now, beginning in verse 2 of chapter 1, which says, When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. Now, how's that for a way to start a book? When was the last time you picked up your Bible and read the word whoredom? I mean, can a pastor even say that from the pulpit? kind of have to. It's right here. There's, there's some shocking language here for sure, and it is intentional. This opening verse is meant to grab your attention and introduce a theme that permeates throughout the entire book of Hosea. The Hebrew word translated whoredom in the ESV is treated differently in other translations. Some translations use harlotry. Others use adulteress or unfaithfulness. But really, I think the ESV gets it just right. When it, with the word whoredom. This is a harsh word that connotes very strong and reprehensible sexual deviancy, specifically in the form of illicit and treacherous sexual relations. It is adultery of the worst kind and is meant to convey the holistic, reprehensible moral character of the person. And so being an adulterer is bad enough. Being a whore is even worse. And that's the strength of the language here. And if that language isn't shocking enough, let's consider what God is really telling Hosea to do. He says, go take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom. For the land creates great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. Now, there's some debate as to what God is instructing Hosea to do here. Some think that that the Lord is, is telling Hosea, hey, go find a prostitute and marry her. Go find a harlot and join yourself to her. But this would be problematic for a few reasons. First, Hosea was a prophet. He was one of the principal religious leaders of the day. And God had strict rules for the types of women that these religious leaders could marry. They, they needed to be Israelite women of upstanding character, certainly not a prostitute or a harlot. They had to be chaste. They had to be pure. And if God was, in fact, asking Hosea to marry a woman of licentious character, it would have violated his own instructions. And standards that he already had laid out for people like Hosea. Furthermore, doing so would have immediately caused Hosea to be disgraced in the eyes of the people. 
and thus destroying his ministry. Now, it doesn't seem likely that God is instructing Hosea to marry this woman with a, a woman with a proven reputation of sexual deviancy. Rather, this seems to be more of a prophetic utterance that Hosea is to go and find a wife and that this woman, whoever she is, will eventually prove herself to be a woman of whoredom and that she will eventually bring forth children of whoredom, which basically means children conceived through adulterous relationships, illegitimate children conceived outside of wedlock. And undoubtedly, Hosea was confused and concerned about what this meant. I can imagine that though he, he went around looking for the most wretched woman that he could find. Hosea probably did the best that he could. He probably found a woman that met the qualifications of a religious leader's life and wife. And I, I would imagine that he had hoped that this woman would not turn out to be the heartbreaking disappointment that God had prophesied that she would be. But notice what happens. Verse 3. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblian, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel. And I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. She conceived again and bore a daughter. The Lord said to him, Call her name No Mercy, for I'll have for, no, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, Call his name not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. So what's happening here? Hosea marries a woman named Gomer, and things seemed to be good for a time. Verse 3, so he went to Gomer, the daughter of Diblian, and she conceived and bore him a son. This is Hosea's first child, a son that God instructs him to name Jezreel, which means God sows. And this child is clearly of Hosea's parentage. It says she conceived and bore him a son. But notice now verse 6, she conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, call her name No Mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. What's the difference here? First, the child's name here is Lo Ruhumah, which literally means in Hebrew, no mercy. And that's a terrible name to give a child. Imagine this kid going to school. We're going to say, hey, No Mercy. How's it going, No Mercy? Perhaps today it would be like literally having the name Not Cool. On your birth certificate. Not cool Lagos. It's probably true, but <laughs> I do my best. Big loser, maybe. No mercy is clearly not an attractive name. Unlike Jezreel, which means God saves. And notice that in verse 6, it just says that Gomer conceived and bore a daughter. It doesn't say that she conceived and bore Hosea's daughter. It just says that she bore a child. It doesn't say that she bore him a child. She just bore a child. The implication here is that this child was not Hosea's, and hence the terrible name this child received. This pattern then continues in verse 8 when, she sa- when it says, And when she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, Call his name not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Again, again Gomer simply bears a son, not Hosea's son. And this son is named Loami, which literally means not my people. Implication, this child also was conceived outside of wedlock. So Hosea marries a woman, Gomer. He hopes the best for this relationship. It starts out fine. They have a son together. But then it goes bad. 
And Gomer becomes unfaithful, gets pregnant, and has a daughter that is not Hosea's. And then as soon as she is able to get pregnant again, she does. And this too through an adulterous relationship. So that this third child is also not Hosea's. And now verse 2 has come true. Hosea has married a wife of whoredom. And she is now bearing children that are resulting from her whoredom. And to emphasize this, chapter 2 clarifies the unfaithfulness of Gomer. Hosea writes in verse 4, Upon her children also I will have no mercy, because they are children of whoredom. For their mother has played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers, who will give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Hosea has been betrayed in one of the most hurtful and deeply injurious ways possible. His wife has repeatedly cheated on him, and now his household has children within it that are the result of her infidelity. And a constant reminder of her betrayal. Can you fathom the hurt and the anguish in Hosea's heart? Imagine if you could get a glimpse into Hosea's personal journal. It would contain a heartbreaking conflict of emotion. Perhaps he'd write something like this. I never forgot the Lord's word to me, saying that I would have an unfaithful and adulterous wife. I had hoped against hope it would not come true, but God's word, as it always is, was true. So here I am, betrayed, hurt, disgusted, and repulsed. Words cannot express the pain I feel for what Gomer has done. She has betrayed my most sacred trust. She has joined herself in the most intimate way possible to other men. And I am, at the same time, utterly crushed and deeply enraged by her betrayal. I so want to have her exclusively for myself. I love Gomer. I really do. And I believe that somewhere she truly loves me. I want it to be us, together, happy and totally secure in one another. But she has ruined all of that. She's given herself freely to others. How can I let myself be close to her, knowing that other men have shared her bed? We made a promise, her and I, and I have been nothing but faithful to her. I have shown unending care to her and blessed her in so many ways, and this is how she repays my love, by pursuing her foolish lusts and selfish passions, leaving only destruction and heartache in her wake. I am disgraced by my allegiance to her. And I feel a weight of sadness and anger that cannot be lifted. Perhaps I should cast her aside. I have every right to do so. But I made a promise to be her husband. Shall I revoke my promise simply because she has broken hers? I remember so vividly the good days we had together. How I so desperately want to return to the simplicity and joy of those days. I am jealous for Gomer's love, but I also desire to push her away forever. Lord, why have you permitted this to happen? Why to me, your faithful servant? Oh God, what would you have me do? Can you begin to understand Hosea's situation? Can you imagine the pain that he endured through this? Some of you here sadly don't need to imagine it. You've personally experienced the betrayal or unfaithfulness of a loved one, or you've witnessed someone you deeply care about endure such heartache. And if that is you, God's grace is sufficient for you. Restoration and healing can and will most certainly come. It will come also to Hosea, as we will see in this passage. But why would the Lord have Hosea endure this? Why why did God have Hosea experience such betrayal by his wife, Gomer? What could be the point? And how is it fair? 
I mean, Hosea is one of God's faithful promise, prophets after all. Why would God desire Hosea to have this wife of whoredom and children of whoredom? How is a God like that compatible with the God of grace and blessing that we see in the New Testament and in Christ? The answer is found all throughout this book. Beginning in chapter 1, verse 2, when it says, Go take for yourself a wife of whoredom, have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. Right there is the purpose statement for why God has had Hosea endure this painful betrayal. God is doing it because the land, meaning the nation of Israel, has committed great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. And Hosea's hurtful marriage and painful family life is meant to parallel and meant to illustrate God's relationship with Israel. In other words, this terrible experience that Hosea went through, it is meant to symbolically represent Israel's unfaithfulness to God. Just as Hosea was betrayed by Gomer, the Lord has been betrayed by Israel. Just as Gomer's illicit affairs have produced with other men, they produced illegitimate offspring, so too has Israel's idolatrous pursuit of other gods brought corruption and impurity into God's household. There's a powerful analogy we need to say here. The Lord is a faithful husband. And the nation of Israel is his adulterous bride. They have not remained faithful to their one true husband, the Lord. They have cheated on him. They have given themselves over to false gods. They have intimately united themselves with pagan deities. They have committed spiritual whoredom to the Lord. And Hosea's experience with Gomer is intended to be a symbolic representation of this. That Hosea, as a spokesman of the Lord, can say, You are to the Lord as Gomer is to me. Just as Gomer has betrayed and hurt me, so you have hurt and betrayed the Lord. And these are the reasons why God gave Hosea's children these symbolic names. Hosea's illegitimate daughters to be called no mercy because that is how the Lord feels towards the Israelites in their infidelity. He intends to wipe them out and show them no mercy for their betrayal. And the next child, Hosea's illegitimate son, is to be called not my people because that is how the Lord feels towards the Israelites in their infidelity infidelity. They have abandoned him, and so he is turning his back on them. And Hosea's children are a symbolic representation of God's frustration and hurt and disdain for the Israelites and their infidelity. And so God had Hosea endure this painful trial so that Gomer's actions would symbolically represent Israel's unfaithfulness to God. That's one reason, but here's another. It was to picture the Lord's heart towards the Israelite nation. Let's read again and see what it says in chapter 2, now verse 2. And it says, plead with your mother, plead, for she's not my wife and I am not her husband. Plead that she put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts. Well, at first read, this may seem that Hosea is speaking about Gomer. If we read on, we see that far more is in view, that this mother here who's been wickedly unfaithful, it is primarily the nation of Israel. And God's response to their unfaithfulness is harsh indeed. Verse 3, I will strip her naked and make her as in the days she was born. Make her like a wilderness and make her like a parched land and kill her with thirst. Upon her children also I will have no mercy because they are children of whoredom. See, the Lord will bring terrible consequences to the Israelite nation. They have gone after other lovers. And look at the consequences. God intends to, verse 3, strip them naked, make them like a parched land, kill them with thirst, 
Verse 4, showed them no mercy. And then we, reading further, we see even more harsh intentions of the Lord. If we go down to verse 9, where we read, Therefore I will take back my grain in its time, and my wine in its season. I will take away my wool and my flax, which were to cover her nakedness. Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall rescue her out of my hand. And I will put an end to all her mirth, her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and her appointed feasts. And I will lay waste to her vineyards and her fig trees, of which she said, These are my wages, which my lovers have given me. And I will make a forest, and the beasts of the field shall devour them. Notice the consequences God's going to bring here. Verse 9, he's going to take away the blessings of grain and wine and wool and flags. He's going to take away his provisions. Verse 10, he's going to expose and uncover Israel's sin and betrayal by laying them out naked, revealing for all their infidelity. In verse 11, he's going to put an end to Israel's joyous activities, the end of all the feasts and festivals and celebrations. Verse 12, he's he's going to lay waste to Israel's wealth and prosperity, taking away their resources. And now look at verse 13, and I will punish her. For the feast days of the Baals, when she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with a ring and jewelry and went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. And here now is the crux of the spiritual harlotry. The Israelites are worshiping other gods, especially Baal. And God has utter disdain for this. He's repulsed by their behavior and idolatry. And they have gone after other lovers and they have forgotten the one who loves them most. God is saying there will be intentional consequences because of their actions. They will be punished. They will suffer because of their spiritual whoredom. So what are the implications of this for us today? It's interesting that the marriage metaphor is Continued in the New Testament. Where Christ is pictured as our bridegroom. And the church is his bride. Just as the Israelite nation committed spiritual harlotry against their God. So too can we commit spiritual harlotry against Christ. When we forget the one who should be our first love. When we chase after other lovers. We prioritize the gods of this world above our own bridegroom, who is Christ. We might not turn to the same pagan gods that the Israelites did, like Baal or Asherah, but there are gods of this world that tempt us and entice us, that try to seduce us every single day. The gods of this world are things like sex and money, responsibility and influence, stuff, materialism, hobbies, success. Recreation, fun experiences, relationships, social status. These things are not bad. They're good things that God has given us to enjoy and to use for his glory. But when our allegiance and love to these things surpass our love and allegiance to Christ, we commit spiritual harlotry. We play the whore. And we betray our beautiful bridegroom, Christ. Every time we find more joy and greater priority in these kind of things than in Jesus himself. In doing so, we create for ourselves modern-day idols. Tim Keller, in his book, Counterfeit Gods, describes it this way. An idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you only what God can give. An idol has such a controlling position in your heart that you can spend most of your passion and energy or emotional or financial resources on it without a second thought. It can be family 
and children or career and making money or achievement or critical acclaim. It can be a romantic relationship, peer approval, competence and skill, secure and comfortable circumstances, your beauty or your brains, a great political or social cause, your morality and virtue, or even success in Christian ministry. An idol is whatever you say, you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. And then I'll feel significant and secure. This is exactly what Gomer did. She turned away from her husband to find other men who might give her meaning and value, joy, security. This is exactly what the Israelites did. As they worshipped other pagan gods and rather than the one true Lord. And this is what you and I do every day when we elevate so many other things as more important, significant, and valuable than Jesus himself. See, the book of Hosea ought to challenge us to consider God as our jealous spouse. He wants our affections and loyalty. Just as a husband ought to be jealous for the loyalty and affections of his wife, just as a wife ought to desire the unwavering faithfulness of her husband, so too does God want unwavering faithfulness and devotion from us. We are Christ's bride. And we are to be utterly devoted to him. And when we fail, we ought to consider how God feels about that. The book of Hosea helps us to do that as we consider Hosea's experiences and apply it to ourselves, realizing that in some way, all of us, we are Gomer. We commit acts of whoredom to our God. And we pursue other loves and at times forget about the one who loves us most. See, I imagine that if Christ was keeping a journal, not Hosea, but Christ this time, writing down how he feels, as we turn and worship other things, he might pen something like this. My children have done it again, just as, they has, just as, as they have always done. They declare week after week that I am their utmost priority, but then they go out and join themselves with other loves, false loves. They betray my most sacred trust. They intimately join their hearts to things far less worthy of their love and affection. They delight in pleasures so fleeting, so shallow, if only they knew the heart I have for them. They ignore how much their unfaithfulness saddens me. They take my love and compassion for granted. We made a promise, them and I. I have been nothing but faithful to them. I have shown unending care to them and have blessed them in so many ways, yet so often they repay my love by worshiping other gods and forgetting me. How quickly they forget Calvary. How conveniently they make light of their sin. I feel a heavy weight of sadness and anger at it all. But I made a promise to be their savior. And whether they realize it or not, they are my forever bride. I am so very jealous for their love. How I yearn for them to repent of their harlotry and renew their utter and complete devotion to me. I want to do something unusual now. I want to just pause the sermon. And put up on the screen here a list of modern-day idols we often join ourselves to. Things we often treasure and love more than Christ himself. You see them there? Financial security, children, relationships, money, accomplishment, sex, 
fitness and health, fun experiences. Do you see these things? These are things that so often captivate our thoughts and affections more than Christ Himself. And I want to take a moment to quietly consider this list. Identify those things there that at times perhaps you love and treasure more than Christ Himself. And let's spend just a moment in quiet confession and prayer to God for these things. Laying before God the ways that we can be or often are spiritually adulterous to Him. Take a moment to do that. Oh, Lord, how we need your grace. Help us to live lives worthy of the calling you've given us in Christ. Amen. As I said at the beginning, the title of this message is Spiritual Harlotry and Supernatural Hope. So far, the focus of this message has clearly been on the spiritual harlotry part because that's the major emphasis of the book of Hosea. But there is also hope here. Incredible hope. In fact, I think in Hosea we find one of the most hopeful passages in all of the Old Testament. There is certainly incredible conviction in this passage. But there is also hope. Amazing hope. And I can't wait to show it to you. We all need hope. Hope for the harlot. And so let's begin to see some of this hope in Hosea chapter 2. In chapter 2 here we see again the adulterous woman, Gomer, Israel, you and me. And in verse 5 she declares her intention to seek after other lovers. I will go after my lovers, she says. A cold-hearted calculation of betrayal. But notice the Lord's response, verse 6. Therefore I will hedge up her way with thorns. I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. She shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. And she shall seek them, but she shall not find them. Even in her purposeful rebellion, God frustrates the adulterous spouse. He he puts up hedges and walls so that her pursuit of other lovers fail. He keeps her sin from becoming even greater. He causes her sin to stop. Stops her in her tracks. And the point is this, that, that God protects his people from perpetual unending sin. He does that. Do you see the hope there? Do you see the grace? This woman, this nation, you and I was intentionally plotting, planning, how can I, be, can, how can I continue to be unfaithful to my God? Yet God intervenes and he frustrates, even, pre- even preventing some of those efforts to betray him. That is incredible. If you or I knew that someone was going to betray us in this way, we might just let them go because we want nothing to do with them. They would have already betrayed us in their hearts. Imagine if you discovered that your spouse somehow had on the calendar an appointment with another lover. You'd be so injured and so hurt, you might just want to push them away. But not so with the Lord. 
Even though his people have every intention of purposefully finding their greatest joy and satisfaction and by turning to things other than God, he does not turn his back on them. And he actually keeps them and protects them from wandering further away than they already have. He brings them to repentance. He causes them to stop in their tracks. And notice the result of his intervention, verse 7. Then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better for me then than now. This woman has tried to find even more adulterous lovers, but God is protecting her from that. And her conclusion is this, well, I suppose I'll return to my first husband, because it was easier and less difficult there. And the allure of her harlotry, it's wearing off. As the consequences of her lifestyle become to begin to bear upon her life, she now yearns for the simpler, more secure days, the days before she was a harlot. The days before she had forsaken her first love. And God's protection of her has begun a process of repentance and restoration. And this woman, this nation, feels shame and regret for her adulterous choices and says, maybe I need to go back. There is hope here. That God works to prevent his people from perpetual unending sin. He calls them back. And even when she was in the thick of her rebellion, we also see this hope. That God, her faithful husband, has been providing for her needs. That God provides for his people even during times of great rebellion. Verse 8. And she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil. And who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. Even in her most rebellious days, the Lord still cared for her. He still provided for her. Even as she pledged her loyalty and affection to other gods, the gods she betrayed still cared for her. He provided for her food and shelter and resources. He even gave her silver and gold, things that she actually used in worship of her other gods. God even provided for her things that she used to fuel her adultery. And friends, this is an amazing picture of the long-suffering mercy and patience of our God. That though we are so unfaithful to Him, He remains faithful to us. That even when we turn our back on Him, He is still caring for us, and He is still attentive to our needs. That is hope. But it gets better. Look at verses 14 and 15. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Angkor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at a time when she came out of the land of Egypt. You see what's happening here? The Lord is initiating now restoration. This is another incredible hope that God initiates restoration between himself and sinners. God is reaching out to his adulterous bride. He is alluring her. He is wooing her, calling her back, bringing her to a private place. He is speaking tenderly to her. And the picture here is the precise opposite of what we see in verses 9 through 13, where the Lord is expressing his disapproval and the harsh consequences that are going to come because of of one's sin. But now there is tenderness, care, and compassion. And also a renewal of God's commitment to provide. He says, I will give her her vineyards. I will give her a door of hope. I will cause her to remember the the better days. The days when we were close. The days before this betrayal. God takes tender initiative to restore this wayward sinner. Even in the face of incredible betrayal and spiritual harlotry. Look at 
God still gently works to restore this person to himself. That is incredible hope. Amazing hope that we all need. But it gets even better. Look at verse 16. And in that day declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and I will no longer call, and you will no longer call me by my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the birds, beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, the war from the land. And I will make you lie down in safety. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. And you shall know the Lord. And in that day I will answer, declares the Lord. I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth. And the earth shall answer the grain, the wine, and the oil. And they shall answer Jezreel. And I will sow her for myself in the land. And I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. Incredible restoration. Absolute renewal. For the spiritual harlot. And here's a great hope. That God will restore wayward children to himself. Notice everything that God does for this adulterous child. There is purification. Verse 17. I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth. And they shall be remembered by name no more. God takes out that sin and wipes it away purifies the person. There's also protection. Verse 18, and I will abolish the bow, the sword, the war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety. There will be peace. God will protect his people. And also there's security. Verse 18, and I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field and the birds of the heaven, the creeping things in the ground. In other words, I will make a public promise, a commitment That what? That I will betroth you to me forever. Incredible security. A promise of forever. And there is relational restoration. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice. In steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. And you shall know the Lord. And then down to verse 23. And I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. God is not only calling his adulterous nation back. He is renewing his relationship with them in the most powerful way possible. He is bringing them in and essentially renewing his own marital vows with his people. Multiple times he speaks of betrothing this spiritual harlot to himself. He is bringing her back to the altar. And he's saying, I will be your husband. I will be your God. Even though you ought to have no mercy, I will show you mercy. Even though you ought to be not my people, you will be my people. I will not let you go. Even though you're a harlot. Even though you're a whore. I love you. And I will be your God. God restores wayward children to himself, no matter the depths of sin into which they plunge. Which is good news for us, isn't it?
Because we all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us have turned to our own way. Each of us has, at times, have been the harlot. But God does not let his people go. Do you see the incredible hope in this passage? Do you see how now, how here, even in the harsh words of Hosea, we see a God of mercy and of grace. We see the God of the New Testament, we, the person we know in Christ. And we can be confident in these hopes because there is one thing that is absolutely consistent between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New is that he is a covenantal God. He is a God who keeps his promises. And there's a reason why God chose to use this marriage metaphor with the Israelites to communicate their betrayal. It is because marriage at its core, it's not a romance, it's a covenant. It is a set of promises that are meant to endure. And God keeps his promises. He keeps his word. And here then, in this truth, we can find the final hope for the harlot. That is this. God will never forsake his promises to his people. We see this in the one section I skipped and I want to return to now. Chapter 1, verse 10. Go back there. Chapter 1, verse 10. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. Here the Lord is remembering the covenant he made to Abraham. Remember, he spoke to Abraham and said, Abraham, your offspring will be as numerous as the sand of the sea and the stars of the sky. God knows that he made a promise. He cannot just completely wipe the Jewish people out. He has a covenant promise to them. And this is a promise he intends to keep. And notice the restoration now here going on, verse 10. And in that place where it was said of them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together. And they shall appoint for themselves one head. And they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Though the Israelites have turned their back on the Lord. And are at this moment not acting as his people. They will someday be seen as children of the living God. And in fact, someday God will bring these two divided kingdoms back together again. These lands of Israel and of Judah, they shall one day be a a, a unified kingdom under one head. And who do you think that head is? It's Christ. The one who, through whom God ultimately fulfills all of his promises. The one through whom God works to restore the wayward sinner, wretched harlots to himself. The one who offers us incredible grace and hope no matter how we fail. And notice notice here too the mention of Hosea's first son, Jezreel. And they shall go up from the land for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Jezreel is mentioned repeatedly throughout this text. Many different places, but why? What's the purpose of this? Remember what Jezreel means. It means that God sows, that he plants, that he causes things to grow. In other words, God causes things to happen. He causes life to happen. God causes his promises to be sown into reality. And Jezreel is a symbol that God acts And that he remains true to his word and his promises, both to judge and to bless. And what he has said he will do, he will do. He will sow, he will bring it about, he will cause it to happen, including the sending of this one. Who will bring God's people together 
and make them children of the living God. And it is in these promises that we find hope. That God is so faithful, even when we are so faithless. And even in our sin, God protects and provides for us. That he initiates and restores himself and sinners. That he restores wayward children to himself. And that is tremendous hope. And so the question now is this. How do you see yourself? Are you living faithfully with your bridegroom, who is Christ? What sins constantly beset you and cause you to forget your first love? The Lord is eager to restore you to himself, perhaps for the very first time. Perhaps you've never really surrendered to the one who made you, and you've always chased after false gods whose promises always seem to disappoint. And perhaps today will be the day that you say, I want to end my harlotry. I want to turn and trust fully in the one who loves me with the most amazing love. I choose to believe in Christ. I place my trust in him for my salvation and for my greatest joy. Or perhaps you are his child, but have neglected your first love. Perhaps you need to ask him to restore you into a deeper Story with a deeper love and affection for Christ. Perhaps you need to plead to God to build within you the spiritual vitality you once had. Perhaps you need to make some real changes in your life. To focus less on the false gods of this world and more on God who made you for a deep and rich and supremely satisfying relationship with himself. Perhaps you need to go back to the altar. And pledge again your vows and promises to the Lord. The Lord is jealous for your love. Just as a married person is jealous for the affections and devotions of their spouse, God's heart yearns for you to give him the first place. We all fail at times. But there's not one person here who's lived a perfect, faithful life to our God. But praise be to God that he remains so faithful to us even when we are so faithless. So let's do our part to turn to him, to seek him. To prioritize him above all else. To reserve for him this greatest place that we can give in our hearts and in our affections. And in that we'll receive the full blessings and the full joy that comes from being a child of Christ. Or son and daughter of the living God. Let's pray.